Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode 19, Modern Professionalism. Thanks for joining me. This week's show is again sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in super CDS bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. Our topic this week is about modern professionalism and how changes in technology and in society have affected the norms of professionalism in the legal field. My guest is Sarah Lalu Amin, a board-certified appellate specialist and shareholder at Banker Lopez Gasler in Tampa. My discussion with Sarah is coming up next. So, Sarah Lalu Amin, thanks for joining me again on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. So today I was hoping we could talk a little bit about professionalism. And now, before anybody tunes out, I know that you and I, people like us, we're subjected to professionalism lectures all the time, right? We go to CLE programs, uh, which we are always seem to have some sort of ethical component because we're required by the Florida Bar to have five hours, I think, of ethics over the course of three years. And you go to these things and you hear a lot of the same thing, and it's a lot of preaching to the choir because the, the kind of people who go to appellate CLEs generally aren't the kinds of people who are in professional and, and ethical trouble. But um, so that's not what we're going to do, right? We're not here to exactly tell people how to be ethical. But we want to talk about some of the finer points of professionalism and, and in particular how uh, these things have been affected by changes in technology and changes in society over the more uh, recent years. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, that sounds great. I thought we should start with talking a little bit about the difference between ethics and professionalism, because the two things get kind of always looped together, but they are um, a little bit different. I think we're going to talk more about professionalism than ethics, but but how, how do you make that distinction in your head between ethics and professionalism? So in terms of ethics, we have rules that bind our conduct, and, and we have rules that are kind of minimum thresholds that we have to abide by. And the rules are pretty clear. The ethical rules are pretty clear, generally. The professionalism standards are kind of standards that we have in our profession. Some of them you can find in, in local rules and guides and things of that nature. But, but it's basically how you relate to your colleagues, how you relate to the court, how you relate to your clients, and kind of the finer points on that than what you'll find in ethics rules. How do you conduct yourself? Yeah, I agree. And I think the, the shorthand I've heard people say, a lot of these CLEs, is that you know, ethics is what you're required to do and, and professionalism is what you should do. And, and I think that there's something to that. Um, there's actually a great quote I found. It's a, um, it's a case out of the 5th DCA in, in 2012, Judge Monaco, who I think we both know. Uh, he, there was a quote in a concurring opinion. This is what he said. He said, there's a difference between ethical and professional. I've always conceived of ethics as the minimum standard, the floor level, a behavior that should be expected of a lawyer. Professionalism is something beyond that. And he goes on to say, uh, being professional means acting with civility, fairness, grace, and honor, and in the best interests of our system of justice. It's the kind of thing that makes a kid look up and say, I want to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a nice quote. And and I think it's also the kind of thing that can make a lawyer say, I'm glad I'm a lawyer. 
Or on the flip side, you know, when you're kind of immersed in an unprofessional environment, I hate being a lawyer. You know, people people do say that. Yes. And, and I think, you know, that's a conversation that we're starting to have more um, in the mental health context, too, about, you know, how people relate to each other and how that can be very stressful when people are unprofessional and unkind, which, you know, there's a lot of overlap there, in my opinion. Do you think that we are in a crisis of professionalism? I mean, we, we've, it seems like I hear that a lot. Uh, maybe ever since I started practicing law, there's a discussion about are lawyers less professional than they used to be? Is there some sort of crisis? I, I mean, what do you think is the state of professionalism? I mean, I think some of this has some to do with the the change in the landscape of how we communicate. You know, things are a lot more electronic these days. And um, you, you do hear that a lot, you know, as I've talked about before. I think we're lucky in the appellate world to be in a bit of a bubble. Um, mm-hmm. Now we all have to venture outside that bubble sometimes. But uh, I think we don't see it as much in our practice, but we have to keep in mind that we're bringing up a new generation of lawyers and we're responsible for what, you know, how they learn to practice and what their standards are based on what they see us do. And I think that's a whole new level of responsibility that we have to think about as the practice grows and develops. Yeah. And I think we do, we do have to keep thinking about it and and how it changes. Um, the, the quote that I read from Judge Monaco, that was back in 2012, and an interesting thing happened um, around that time period, and this was actually pointed out to me recently as something that I didn't fully appreciate, but you know the, the oath of admission of the Florida Bar that we all took when we joined, but we all sort of re-commit uh, ourselves to every year when we pay our bar dues and submit our paperwork, uh, it was actually amended in... 2011, and they added a whole um, phrase to the oath that says, to opposing parties and their counsel, I pledge fairness, integrity, and civility, not only in court, but also in all written and oral communications. So in essence, uh, the, the oath of admission, uh, we, are, we are promising, swearing, committing to being civil, right? Mm-hmm. And, and civility is is involves courtesy and politeness and civilized behavior, right? And so it's, I, I think that the the distinction that Judge Monaco was making is blurred a little bit uh, after that or around that time period because it sounds like uh, the, the changes to the oath are saying, we're not just asking you to be polite and to be civil. Uh, it's required. Yeah, I, I'm glad that that language is now in our oath and I think it's a really important reminder for folks and and a, a great a great thing to talk about because I don't think that everyone knows that that language was amended and the kind of import of that at this time and the the way this was called to my attention interestingly was in an ethics or actually it wasn't it was a it was a lunchtime presentation uh, at the uh, practicing with the fifth dca that the florida bar put on uh last month and it was Justice Lawson of the Florida Supreme Court who pointed this out, that in his opinion, uh, civility is an obligation of lawyers uh, subject to discipline. And since the Florida Supreme Court is the body that ultimately decides these things, I think that we can uh, 
take it to heart that the court is is aware of that and believes in that uh, change to the oath of admission and uh, is willing to you know take whatever action to ensure that that lawyers are are being good to each other mm-hmm. right and just just like you know slinging mud is exhausting when you're the advocates doing it I think it's really exhausting for the judges to have to see that have to make rulings associated with those types of fights um, that are sometimes unnecessary and not getting anyone anywhere and maybe you know maybe racking up fees maybe you know not helping the interest of your client get justice um, it, it's a big topic with judges and I, I know a couple years back when I had the honor of um, doing the question and answer session with the justices of the Florida Supreme Court at the Florida bar meeting um, that's all we talked about you know a lot of times you have discussions that, that happens annually and we'll cover a lot of different topics I mean professionalism was the topic of discussion during that whole Q&A session. No, it's definitely something that they think about. One of the things I wanted to talk about today is, you know, unprofessional behavior has always been a thing, I'm sure, but it feels to me like some of the changes in technology and changes in the way that we practice have enabled maybe more unprofessional behavior, or at least certainly exposed more unprofessional behavior because so much of it is out there. One thing that I think is a important area to focus on is is email communications. Email has become a way of life for lawyers. I, how many how many emails would you say you get in a day? I really don't like to think about it. I know, right? It's depressing. <laughs> I mean, I I don't want to date myself too much, but I remember times when email was was not at all an important practice part of the practice of law it was sort of a supplementary thing that we used here and there and then but it has just morphed to the point where we even get you know orders from the court by email everything is done by email you just can't avoid it but some of the benefits of email are maybe some of the drawbacks too the fact that it's essentially you know instant communication that is so easy to send and receive emails i think maybe it leads to more imprudent emails perhaps yeah yeah i think it does you know when you don't have the time or you don't take the time to put in that filter and sometimes the filter is just time you know giving yourself time to not have an emotional reaction to something someone said or not take something personally Um, you know i think the benefit of kind of developing in your career is you learn how to not take things personally you know chances are it's not about you and you just have to figure out how to do the best thing for your client for your position at that time based on the situation and you don't have to react personally to things um but but yeah i think that the expectations also of a quick response um you know typically this comes in terms of the you know uh, e- ill-advised emails are often those with your adversaries mm-hmm. and so I think those are especially the ones where a quick response is not always necessary and sometimes no response is necessary and you know if they object to something that you think they shouldn't object to you take it before the court it is what it is and and you don't have to have a back and forth about it chances 
chances are you're not going to change their mind. And you're just going to dig yourselves deeper into a bad rapport. Mm -hmm. Just take it up professionally with the court. Yeah, I find that it becomes sort of a a red flag for me if we're in a, a dispute and emails start flying back and forth, you know, in real time. <laughs> I take that as a bad sign. I usually decide that that's the time to slow down, you know, to maybe stop replying or wait until tomorrow to reply because a lot of times time time heals all wounds, right? It sure and <laughs> does. It sure does. Most of them. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> Enough time, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, I think sometimes if you just slow down uh, the pace of email, that can be helpful because people take more time. They think about things. They diffuse a little bit. That's sort of like one of my number one tactics in responding to abuse of email is to just slow down the process. And like you said, sometimes... Sometimes no response is necessary, and that's tough because we're advocates and we want to make our case and we want to prove that we're right and we want to have the last word. And there's like no winners in an email battle, I think. None. And I, I think a good guideline is how would I feel if I saw this attached to someone's motion? You know, it, it just everything that you say in an email could be filed. Um, you you want to be really careful what you say. You want to always be professional, but you you know we all have our moments. But you want to make sure that you definitely look professional in those emails. You know, and I am as guilty as as a lot of people that I no well, I don't know maybe all lawyers aren't like this. I feel like I don't like talking on the phone that much. It's not my favorite thing. Uh, but I would rather send an email. But there are times when you just have to pick up a phone, I think. I think it's it's more difficult, not impossible certainly, but more difficult for someone to be rude and dismissive, dismissive of you on the telephone than they are in email. Email is, is more impersonal that way. So if I have something important that's sensitive, you know, maybe an extension of time that I think is going to be an issue or, you know, I need some favor or some consideration by the other side, uh, I pick up the phone and I try and talk to them in person because I find that that can be a lot more productive than email. Yeah, I think it's a case-by-case basis. And, you know, depending on the person, your rapport, the subject matter, you know, is there something that you, you know, want to talk about kind of off the record? I mean, I, I view email, really everything that you say is out there, but, you know, email is a lot more on the record. And, you know, by phone, in a conversation, you can kind of level with somebody. Um, but there, there are definitely times when that's counterproductive and times when you would prefer to communicate by email. You know, I've, I've known people who have had such issues with an opposing counsel that they will not accept phone calls. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to communicate only in writing because every time we communicate on the phone, um, you yell and scream. <laughs> so Yeah. I think once it has devolved to that point, right, right then the phone calls are not particularly helpful either. Right, right. And, you know, that's another thing of professionalism is, is you know, I, I guess if you send an email, you have some assurance that the other side has received it. If you're trying to make a phone call, you really don't know, right? I mean, people can dodge your phone call. Uh, 
they can not get your your voicemail or whatever like that. People who are trying to be difficult, I think it's harder to hold them accountable if you're leaving them voicemail messages and if you're sending them emails that you have a record of and can say, hey, they're not responding. And that is important sometimes. It, is, it can be, for and sure. And maybe in your email you mention that you have left five messages. Do you have any particular thoughts on carbon copies to people on emails? I, I think that this has gotten a little bit out of control sometimes in, in some circumstances. I see so many people get roped in on emails, and I find that to be maybe a little bit unprofessional, too. I feel like sometimes people are roped into emails just to be spectators to you know whatever dispute is going on uh, and un- unnecessarily involving people in disputes. To, what, are, what are your thoughts on adding people to email chains? Well, again, I think, you know, everything's kind of case by case and you should use discretion. And I think it all comes back to in every communication, just be mindful of that communication. Be mindful of who you're talking to, why you're talking to them, what you need back from them. Um, You know, sometimes you send an email out to a bunch of people and it's not that everyone needs to see everyone's response. And you can say that in your email. But I think what you're talking about is kind of just copying people for sport. (laughs) And, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, if people are on such limited time these days, number one, if they don't need to do anything, um, sometimes they need to know, and that would be a reason to CC them. But if they don't need to do anything, if they don't need to know about it, if maybe they need to just know the end result, um, you can wait and forward something to a group later on once it's all hashed out with the people who need to hash it out. So, you know, it's kind of on a need-to-know basis, and you don't want to burden everyone with everyone's responses and everyone having to read all this stuff that's part of respect you know in this day and age we're on such limited time right you don't want to ask people to sift through stuff they don't have to sift through and i think that there's a some efficiency too in the sense that when when emails get sent to multiple parties uh nobody knows exactly who is supposed to respond right and then maybe nobody responds mm-hmm. <laughs> so i right. think it, it can be a lot more effective to narrow who you send emails to because then you have some accountability right and you're kind of a cruise director at that point you know i need this from let's discuss this let's resolve this and then you know let's run it by these people um yeah you do want to be efficient now one of the things about email of course is we we are all again not that long ago, if you wanted to get a hold of your lawyer, it was business hours, right? Because you were making a phone call or you were sending a fax or, you know, heaven forbid, sending a letter. <laughs> but now we have email and even worse, we all have iPhones and Android phones and one or two of us still have Blackberries and we, we're tied to our email all the time. And so it creates some expectations, I think, about immediacy of response and and which kind of is a professionalism issue right like how how quickly are you expected to respond to email and are you expected to respond on the weekends and at nights how do you feel about that what's your what's your policy on you know after hours and weekends email i have the same lawyer answer it depends (laughs) right Um, Again, everything's so case by case. I mean, you might be working on something for a client that is very time sensitive. And, um, you know, if you've um, got something going on that needs an immediate response and that's part of what you're doing for your client is handling that in a timely manner, 
there are times when that's necessary. Um, I think that sometimes we send out things at all hours, and that's just the way, um, you know, different people work different ways, work at different times, different schedules. And it's, it's nice when you do that if you specify that you don't need a response right away. You know, I'll say that to people sometimes, you know, no rush. Mm-hmm. Um, if, but I, but I, I try not to send really late emails. I, if I'm working through stuff on the weekend, sometimes it's easier to just go ahead and get it out. But I will usually say something like no rush if that's the case. Or if we're in the throes of something serious, you know, then probably that person is going to respond to me because it's that type of thing. But if it's not that type of thing, um, don't stress people out. Yeah, my view is similar. I mean, I think that certainly when you're in a situation where there are time constraints and everyone's working on the weekend, then, you know, of course, there are emails that go back and forth. Sometimes, you know, I get emails out of the blue from clients on the weekend on things that are that are not urgent. And I know it's probably just because that's when they are thinking about, you know, their legal matters. And it just depends. You know, if I have the time and I can answer off the top of my head, sometimes I will because I figure they they will probably be pleasantly surprised, right, to have an answer from, from, from their lawyer over the weekend. If they're the kind of people who are respectful of your time and that sort of thing, then I think that's great. But I, don't, I, I think that there shouldn't be that expectation. I think for all of us, you know, we are entitled to some time off, and there's a reason why there's business hours and non-business hours, right? And I think that people that people probably shouldn't expect an answer over the weekend if they haven't, if there isn't a reason for that, reason for them to expect it. Yeah, and I, I don't think they always do. I think that a lot of times it is just because, like you said, that's that's when they happen to be working, and there, there can be kind of an assumption um, in that regard, but. Um, it, it also doesn't hurt sometimes, depending on the situation, to send a quick email, I think, saying, you know, thanks for your email. Um, I'm going to do X, Y, Z um, on Monday or, or whatever the case might be. Along the same lines, but as the email is now, we live in an electronic filing age. And I, I clearly remember a time not that long ago when you would always wait for the the 4.55 p.m. faxes to come in on Friday, right? Because faxes were deemed received on the as long as they were received by 5 o'clock, they were received on Friday. So lawyers, would, it seemed to me fairly routinely, and maybe it's just because that's when they got it done, but you'd get a lot of Friday faxes, which would, would sh- sort of shorten the f- effective period that you had to work on something because, you know, you probably wouldn't get to it till Monday and a couple of days have lapsed. And I guess that's different now with electronic filing. Um, people have until until midnight. But, um, you know, ultimately, I don't see a lot of abuses of electronic filing in the appellate law, in the appellate uh, world, because our deadlines usually aren't that short. But um, I don't know. Do you have any particular thoughts about late filings? No, again, I think this is something where people are on their own schedules, and I I would advise against that if you can avoid it just for the stress factor. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And because it's always possible that, you know, something shuts down, your computer freezes up. I mean, it's just a lot of stress. But then again, if that happens to be the time, you know, when people are finishing up their work, they wanted to do one last proof or something like that, 
Um, and, you know, people have different arrangements. Some people file themselves. Um, some people have someone do that for them, and that can only happen during business hours. And so because of the way our counting rules work now in terms of calculating, um, you know, deadlines and things, uh, I don't really think there's an issue of abuse there. And so I never judge anyone for <laughs> for a late filing or for the hours that they do business. We're, we're all different. Sometimes when I know a brief is due uh, a day and it's, you know, six o'clock and I'm leaving the office and I haven't seen yet, I somewhat, sometimes I feel a little bit sorry (laughs) for the lawyers on the other side because I'm like, somebody's working late tonight, right? Yeah, yeah. There is one abuse though that I that I could think of that I saw, and I'm sure it's it's an uncommon situation, but it was an interesting story. I was I was in bankruptcy court and I was watching a case, and it was not a case I was directly involved with, but one of my partners was. Although they don't generally allow computers in the federal courthouse, there was an exception made in this case, and the lawyers had their had their electronics with them, and the judge. Uh, made a the bankruptcy judge made a ruling, and the lawyer in the courtroom filed. Clearly, he was ready. He hit the button and filed a notice of appeal of the order that the judge had just entered within you know two or three minutes of him <laughs> making the ruling, and it popped up on on Pacer, and the judge saw it, and he did not view that as very professional. I'll tell you that. <laughs> or, or maybe just not a great idea if you're still having that argument in front of the court. Yeah. Yeah, you, you've got some time. You don't need to do it from the courtroom, right? Right. <laughs> If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Commercial Surety. They can be reached at www.commercialsurety.com or by phone toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Episode 9, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious. If you really want to understand appellate bonds and how the business works so that you can better explain that and discuss it with your client, I highly recommend you give that episode a listen. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA sponsoring the show. The next time a client needs a supersedious bond, please give them a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process and give you one less thing to worry about. The counterpart to electronic filing is that everything is digital. It's all available. Um, More and more, it's publicly available. I mean, some of the things we do are limited to lawyers, um, but more and more we see it's so easy to find everything that's filed in a case, to to see dockets, to see briefs particularly the appellate courts now, it's easy availability of briefs and cases, even cases that we aren't counsel for. Uh, It makes it very easy for the outside world to see your briefs, to see your work product. Um, I think that's something that we have to keep in mind is that, you know, I suppose these things were always public record, but it was a lot harder to get. You'd have to drive over to the second DCA, ask the clerk for you know to pull the file, look at the briefs, pay something to get it photocopied, maybe. And now it's so much easier. Does it? How do you feel about that? Does that affect the way you write at all, or the way you approach cases? The fact that you know the the audience is potentially unlimited now for our for our writing. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm very aware of that, as I think we all should be. I um, am mindful that if there's sensitive information about someone that doesn't need to be in my brief, it doesn't help my client, help my argument in any way, I don't gratuitously include that type of information. Even if I don't need the name of a person who's implicated in something in my brief and I can refer to them generally based on their role or something like that. I mean, sometimes you have to include names, uh, but sometimes you don't. And I think it's just a matter of being mindful that what you do is going out there in the world and you are responsible for that. I mean, certainly in terms of confidentiality, um, we have very strict rules that bind us for confidentiality. And What's interesting about that is that it's a balance because on the one hand, there are specific categories of information that are deemed confidential and private and have to be redacted and can't be the subject of public record and available. But on the flip side, there's an important rule of disclosure. There's an important rule of transparency and you know what what it means to be a public record. And so when just because you say something should be redacted and should be confidential if it's not part of what the rule considers confidential information, the courts actually can't seal that for you and and keep that out of the public domain. The public has a right to a lot of this information. And so it's a constant balance. Um, you know, what is defined as public record is, you know, th- those are legal definitions, and we can't change that. But we can still be mindful. And even to the extent that, like, you're, you know, hopefully you and I and our friends are not in this position, but to the extent you're in a case that is particularly nasty or, you know, maybe your, your, your briefing is sharper than you would have would otherwise write, or maybe you're maybe you're handling a case uh, on a budget, and your your brief is not as good as you would would hope it would be. You know, under the right circumstances, we all have limitations on time and funds and that sort of thing. You kind of have to realize that it's not just the three judge panel and the lawyers on the other side you have to consider. But uh, if your if your work product is not what you would hope it would be. You never know who will read that and and evaluate on that, right? Right, and think that maybe that's the best thing you've ever written ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, exactly. It's just something to be aware of, I guess. That, that this is not a it's not a private conversation. The same thing applies to oral argument too. Yeah. I mean, the again, it was not that long ago that oral arguments were not recorded. And if your clients wanted to see the oral argument, they had to come in person. And then there was a time period after that where most of the DCAs, I know certainly the second DCA was recording uh, oral arguments, but you had to jump through some hoops to get a copy of the of the recording. You had to call the marshal, and the marshal would burn it onto a DVD. And, you know, I did that a couple of times. But now... Um, all of the arguments are streamed live, uh, so if there are important cases, people can watch it live, your clients can watch it live, and but then they're also stored and archived, so you can go back and watch oral arguments. And so, again, the, the conversation that you think you're having with a three-judge panel uh, and, you know, five or ten people in the courtroom is really potentially viewable by the entire world. That's something to think about. It is something to think about. I mean, it's um, it's 
really important to to keep all of this in mind when you're out there in the world advocating on behalf of a client in a case that is a public case. Um, it's important for your client too, and that's sometimes a consideration for clients. You know, um, should I settle this or should I put myself out there um, as an individual, as a company, and go through this public process? And I think that's part of what we have to advise our clients about: is that here's here's what this looks like, and here's the availability, and um, you know, if there's any PR aspect to that, um, it's an important consideration. Yeah, where the briefs, of course, are available too, but, you know, we live in a video society, and while uh, people who are interested in a topic or interested in a company or, or maybe out to get someone or whatever, they may not go find the briefs and dig through uh, stuff that's only interesting to us appellate lawyers, but they may go to uh, like the second DCA actually hosts their their arguments on YouTube. They may very well go to YouTube and watch an oral argument uh, because that's just what what we do as a society, right? Yeah, and I, I think overall this is generally a pretty good thing because it's good for the public to understand what the appellate process is like and what the judiciary's role is. And I think that this kind of helps with that because you know people can see what the court is concerned about and what the court's actually looking at from an appellate review standpoint as opposed to um, just a discussion on the overall substance of a case. When a case goes up on appeal, there's really specific issues, sometimes procedural, um, and just for the public to have an appreciation of that and that when a court reverses or affirms, it's not necessarily the comment on the overall state of things that people can perceive it to be. So I think that the availability of these things is, a, is generally a good thing. Yeah. Now, I understand that you had an experience recently where some pieces of an oral argument that you did sort of got shared not by you but but by other people. Can you talk about what that what that feels like yeah that that was really interesting to me i didn't know um I just had a regular oral argument uh at this i think it was at the second d c a and um the the case was resolved but I discovered, and it was because a couple people came up to me and said, I think I saw you on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't know anything about that, but I I think that a third party actually published this oral argument. And, you know, it was a, it was a good, um, it was a good oral argument. And people had, you know, the comments, I read some of them. I, I did not delve into um, the giant stream of comments. It, it they always say never read the comments. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was it was on a topic that was you know kind of a big topic of the day and was interesting to people in the foreclosure context, and so um, it got a lot of attention. And it was it was just interesting from a lot of perspectives. You know, one like you're saying that anything that you do in court is public and is in the public domain and out there. And also from the comments perspective and to see how people who were not lawyers, many of them commenting, um, kind of perceived the process. And, you know, my, my opposing counsel and I were both women. And, uh, you know, to hear all the comments about our voices was quite fascinating because, no, 
we do not sound like men. <laughs> and, and I think some people, it still falls a little harsh on their ears when they hear, you know, somebody who does not sound like a man in court. Um, somehow that's a little unexpected for people. But there, the video is out there and, and can, you know, train people's ears a little bit more. So Yeah. <laughs> well, that is interesting. And it, it sort of falls into some of the, you know, what we've talked about, this implicit bias, right? Mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. people... Uh, and, and, and probably the comments are from people who are not lawyers, I suppose, but they have their mindset of what lawyers should look and sound like, I suppose. And if it if it doesn't meet their expectations, then <laughs> somehow they feel motivated to comment on that, right? But mm-hmm. it, it is a little bit telling maybe of, of society generally, but, uh, you know, I... I hope not. But, but <laughs> I think it, that's the thing about the comments, right? Is the it's the fringe. <laughs> sometimes, but but then again, you know that I I think generally this information out there and the conversations are a good thing because yeah. it exposes a lot. It gets people thinking. It gets people talking, and you know that makes me bring that up here because that stood out to me as something that I, I thought was kind of an implicit bias sort of thing. And, and I think it's important to talk about because, you know, everybody has a different style and it's important to, you know, have a style that's your own. And, and yeah, when it is out there in the public, um, you know, people may comment on, you know, the sound of your voice or what you wore. And, you know, it's it's one of those things. We are all, along with your topic also of social media, we're out there so much more. And, you know, we, we have to, I think we have to be respectful of each other. We're all different. We have to support each other and not try to tear each other down. And I think that, you know, certainly our appellate community is really good at that. Yes. I think the legal community as a whole is not so bad at that. And then I think, you know, we have work to do on people's understanding of the judicial system. Definitely. Now, do you think that this availability of videos of oral argument, does that change the way you present arguments at all? I mean, is it just something that's in the back of your head, or do you think about that more now? <laughs> Maybe that you've had this experience. <laughs> you know, I, I, when, I'm, when I'm preparing for an oral argument, the, the thing I think about is just being prepared and advocating for my client and getting that across to the judges who need to decide my case. I, I can't say that it's really influenced me. I mean, I've I've always viewed that proceeding as, with a lot of respect and, you know, wouldn't say anything there. I mean, I, I wouldn't say anything in my practice, you know, let alone oral argument um, right. <laughs> that, that right. I wouldn't be proud of. I mean, it, it is spontaneous and that you don't always know what the next question is going to be and how that's going to come out. But, you know, I think if you have that mindset of being professional, that you know, you don't let that go and you just make sure that that's a filter all the time in your communications, especially, especially in a public proceeding. Part of my point being that just, uh, because of the videotape nature, I think for lawyers who are not as professional as we would hope they would be, or maybe not as enlightened as we would hope they would be at oral argument, uh, it's, they have to realize that it's, that is on video, right? And it is shareable and it's viewable by the court. 
and it's viewable by the bar in the event that somebody had a complaint, and it's viewable by your clients. And so it just makes everything all that much more accountable, which isn't a bad thing, but it's something to, to be aware of. Right. And, and pro tip here, um, it doesn't hurt to know what you look like when you're doing an oral argument. So now that things are available, you know, if you've done an oral argument before, go watch yourself. Sometimes we don't look the way we think we do. I, I know that I'm a person who, um, you know, out there in the world, I kind of wear my thoughts on my face. You know, if I, and, and that's something you really need to be aware of because a lot of times you are being videotaped while you're seated at council table. And I have seen people make faces in some of these videos. You might not even realize that you're doing that. So be hyper aware of everything you're doing when you walk into that courtroom. I've also heard conversations before the court begins um, taped and then played I mean you know and then after your oral argument wait until you're outside of the courtroom wait until you're outside of the courthouse preferably when you're in your car or at the office before you start commenting which is really you know confidential information about your impressions um, with your to your client to your colleagues um, you know, that's it, we have a tendency to want to talk about it right away and let people know what happened. Just make sure that you're outside the realm where, you know, maybe your opposing counsel is around the corner. It's, it's just at, at a minimum, it's unprofessional, but it could be worse. It could be a breach of confidentiality if you're sharing some strategy. You know, I think, you know, you set in terms of settlement discussions or something. So be careful. Yeah, I have seen those recordings start early, like you said, and you do pick up incidental comments and conversations, and I guess people should always be aware that when you're in a a courtroom, things can be recorded or certainly can be heard in chambers and that kind of thing, but now, not only that, it could be going out over the internet at the same time, too. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) For sure. Well, and then the, you know, sort of the, the, what relates to all of this is, social media right because this electronic age we have we're we're in this you know social media heavy environment where most people have some sort of social media presence not all but i think the social media is seen as a marketing tool for a lot of people and rightfully so right how else do we get our name out there and our accomplishments out there uh, as it's certainly not as easy and as quick as social media can allow. So you see a lot of lawyers have some sort of social media presence. Uh, And I think there's some professionalism risks to that too, right? If people don't draw a a careful line between personal uh, and professional. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, again, you always have to have your filter on. You have to, you know, realize and and be comfortable with um, kind of along the same lines of this email I'm sending could be attached to a motion. Um, The very person who I'd least want to see this post could see this post. Anyone could see this post. You know, even if I'm in a private group, you know, there's a lot of these private groups, too, those private groups might contain your, oppo- your your opposing counsel. There there might be judges who learn of what is said in this private group. I mean, just be be careful, and when in doubt, don't. Yeah. 
Well, and the you know the privacy features are always dependent upon the provider doing a good job, right? <laughs> we know that Facebook and you know some of these sources are just not LinkedIn. Sometimes they don't have the best practices well, as relates to that. So you just like you said, I think you have to assume that anything that you put in social media could be seen by anybody. Uh, unless proven otherwise. <laughs> right. The members of your group could breach your, your trust as well. I mean, you just never want to put anything out there that um, you'd be the least bit concerned about anyone seeing. And even to the extent that you are posting things on a personal account, you know, that the, the bar does have some reach uh, ethically, uh, you know, and there's certainly professionalism concerns. You can't completely divorce yourself as professionals, as lawyers. We can't divorce ourselves from what we do, right, and our obligations. And you, you, you can be disciplined for things that are are done in your in your personal life. If you're doing, if you're saying things that are disparaging of a court or the the legal system, you know, um, there there are some risks. So it's you can't wall off your personal life from your professional life when you're a professional that's part of what being a being a professional is it is and that's what taking an oath means and that's what being an officer of the court means it's an honor to be a lawyer and we have a lot of responsibilities and obligations on our shoulders and they don't ever go away well, Sarah, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, if people want to hear more from you and me, I will tell them that they should consider going back and listening to episode three, where it's called Writing for a Living, where you and I sort of had some very geeky conversation about writing and, and the intricacies of that. And it's actually, I don't know if I've told you, it's actually one of my most popular back episodes. It's one of uh, four or five uh, that have the most downloads. So I would encourage people to go back if uh, and listen to that too. So Sarah, your contact information is in the show notes, but if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Um, you can find me, uh, Sarah Lalu Amin, L-A-H-L-O-U hyphen A-M-I-N-E. Um, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on uh, my firm's website at Banker Lopez. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's been a, a great conversation with you, and I really appreciate uh, your time and, and giving us a chance to talk about some of these things. Thanks a lot, Dwayne. I appreciate you having me and for having this conversation. I think it's a really important time to be talking about this. It, professionalism makes us better lawyers, happier people, and uh, hopefully inspires some of those young children that Judge Monica was talking about to become <laughs> lawyers, too. Definitely. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks to Sarah Lalouamine for again being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are not legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as advice for any particular situation. That being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'd be happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, D-D-A-I-K-E-R at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes available in your podcast player or on our website, issuesonappeal.com. Thanks again for listening. Please consider telling any other lawyers that you know about the show if you think it might be something they would listen to. If you could share a link on your social media accounts, that would be great. Any exposure for the show is really appreciated. And please consider using our sponsor, Commercial Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is always in the show notes. Please take a moment, 
add it to your contacts so that you're ready when a client needs a supersedious bond. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.